When was it along the journey that you thought, I've got something here. I've turned this into something. I've made this. I love doing these interviews where I don't really know exactly what the question is and it's framed in a slightly different way. And so I contemplate it and come up with a different answer. Still the truth, but a different aspect of it. I was always well known in the hobby. It's just that the hobby got bigger. <laughs> and I was in the thick of it really from the beginning, even probably in the early 70s. But the easy answer that I gave in one of my uh, podcasts was that the turning point was in 79 when the first book came out and it was an immediate sellout. And I thought, you know what? I've got it made. I'd earned tenure at a university. I really enjoyed the students. I enjoyed my fellow professors, had a great life, I was single at that point, had a great collection. And the first price guide book was an immediate hit. And I knew I'd made it. But that's the answer I've given in the past. You've helped me to construct a better answer. And that is that in 1969, 1979 wouldn't have happened if I had gotten my cards and sold them to Gervis Ford because I was dating a gal in college. And I thought, I need some more money here. I'm poor. I'm working these extra jobs. I still don't have enough money. So 69 made 79 possible. And then 79 made 89 possible. I'm not talking about my age. I'm talking about the years. But in 1989, it was a huge decision to not expand the baseball magazine to include football, but to start a new magazine. Everybody said I was crazy, but it's one of the very best decisions I ever made. And then in 99, it's hard to not think that starting BGS was a huge turning point because it's been a big driver for uh, the company for my successors. Some of those things, Jeff, as happens to some of your other entrepreneur friends, is the recognition can be in arrears. You yeah. make these decisions. It isn't always a big hit immediately, but you look back and you say that was a pivotal point. But in 79, I really did think, yes, I, I have made it. I have a claim to fame, something that I'm going to enjoy for the rest of my life. The key is just placing a lot of bets, making a lot of connections, giving yourself a lot of opportunities. Because if you give yourself enough opportunities, then one of them will be that one that hits for you. That's the difference between you and me. You are a serial entrepreneur, and that's how serial entrepreneurs think. Guys like me, a little uh, more risk averse, I save up my bullets. feel like I've only got a certain number. And so the nine game I played with you there was 69, 79, 89, 99. Those were very calculated. It turned out great. But there was a lot of forethought that went into each one of them. Grading did just pop on the map. D doing a football price guide separately didn't just all of a sudden happen. These were, I, I, I have a bias toward contemplation, <laughs> but I'm willing to pull the trigger. When it's time to pull the trigger, you got to yeah. pull the trigger. So well, I'm sure we share is, that. There are many pathways to be successful and everyone has their own style. And some, as you said, take more of that strategic approach. You shoot with a sniper rifle and get your shot and then you hit it. And then other people like me are a little more akin to walking in and trying a bunch of different things and throwing a bunch of things on the wall and seeing where the putty sticks and then going that direction. But just different ways that can achieve obviously fabulous results as you've achieved throughout your career. I'm curious though, did you ever think all these years later, we would be sitting here during a time when basketball cards have actually surpassed baseball cards, the reason for your original books and price guides in popularity. Basketball didn't even get its own price guide in the books for a long time. We've talked about the long tail. Basketball just doesn't have a very long tail. There, there's not a lot of history with basketball. And so if you look at the market cap of all the sports, if you restrict it as you do, which is what most people care about the last year, two or three, basketball is amazing and has surpassed I think all of them. And it's not just Michael Jordan. It's LeBron James. It's Luca. It's all these kind of things. Oh, and Trey, your guy Trey as well. The market cap of that is just crazy. But if you keep extending to go back to 2000 and 1990, 1980, 1970, 1960, 1950, 
baseball is still number one in total. But for the glamour cards, basketball has shot up like crazy. When I got back into the hobby a few years ago and, and started, I, it was all about the cards from the last few years. Although as I have, you know, now been investing and, 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 and collecting cards over the last few years, I bought a lot of cards from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And I think have a lot greater appreciation. So while I think the modern basketball stuff is catching a lot of people's eyes, hopefully it's ex exposing a lot of people to all the other things that the hobby can offer. It certainly is. And I think that's just awesome. There's so many choices and it's a wise choice for somebody getting into the hobby to attack basketball first. It's easier to get your arms around it. There are less players. The stars are very visible. They're enduring, very personable. So basketball is a good choice for picking a sport to try to master. Again, as you can't ever really master it, but you can gain a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom, a lot of insight. In basketball, you can do it quicker, I think. That is true. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good way to start from that standpoint, for sure. Big news. Weeks ago, one of your legacies with Beckett was starting Beckett Grading Services. And the company that would go up against and would fight for market share with PSA, the big news about them being acquired by a private equity group led by Nat Turner, who's a prominent card collector. What are your thoughts on that? I'm hard pressed to figure out how this is not a, a good thing. Who's it bad for? So I, I'm looking forward with uh, great anticipation to the new ownership. I'm glad they kept Joe Orlando in place. I'm a little sensitive from my experience and some of my friends that when you come in and that there's a buyout, sometimes there's some big changes. And I don't think they're going to be big changes. I think there's going to be big innovations and big improvements with the energy of bringing in a very passionate and knowledgeable owner who really cares about the category. I'm very excited. Yeah, I think it being owned by a sports car guru himself is a great thing. And as you said, new energy, innovation, it can lead to that. Hopefully it will. It's, it's going to be really exciting. Jim, I can't help but notice the background you have behind you here. I know what this is because I, I had the honor of having dinner at your house one night. You invited me there and I saw just a little bit of your amazing sports card collection. I, you've got so many Hall of Famers that you've collected over the years. I'm curious, who are you collecting today? My, my wall of fame that you're referring to is a bunch of slab cards up in my backdrop and it spans around the room and it's probably a thousand cards. I used to do it by sport and then a few years ago I switched it to be just alphabetical by the person, by the celebrity, because my friends are not necessarily baseball or basketball or football, they're just sports fans in many cases. What I'm putting on my wall are things that would draw interest from not just the serious collector and not just the casual collector, but even the non-collector. And so I'm heavy on local interest. And I certainly look for anybody that might ever knock on the door and check it out. Some of the local stars. Yeah, it's one heck of an impressive collection. An episode you put out recently that I thought was a very timely one, especially as you said, a lot of my audience is into the modern cards, into basketball cards, is you talked about the fallacy of just dismissing this year's basketball rookie class which a lot of people seem to be doing. You don't have the big Zion type player who people are excited about going into this year. I know this is counter instinctual, but the hobby's been too easy <laughs> for the last six or eight months. And the only decreases that we've seen are things that so wildly increased before that you're still looking smart over the last 12 months. If every class is better than the one before, that sounds great, but that can't happen forever. So there needs to be this dynamic element if you're not sure what comes next. And there will be a breakout star, whether it be a huge breakout star or not, we don't know that, but there probably will be. And so this instant gratification that people have gotten accustomed to is not healthy. That's where the irrational exuberance comes in. So being in a wait and see, that makes people stop and say, hey, do I really want to pay the same as last year's price for this product or more 
when I don't see the value necessarily at this time. If people back away, that's not even a bad thing. It means the people in the industry are voting with their dollars. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. We can't have as hot of a rookie class as we've had every single year. But to your point about it being somewhat unpredictable, if you had rewound the clock, let's say three years ago, and you had said three or four years ago, should people have been more excited about the football rookie class of Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota or the quarterback class that had, let's say, Patrick Mahomes, people back then would have been, of course, Jameis and Marcus. There was a lot more excitement about that quarterback rookie class than there was around Patrick Mahomes. But of course, Mahomes has emerged as this all-time great potential figure in football. So you just, you never know. And you can see that you've seen the same in basketball, you've seen the same in baseball. It's funny, I don't know if you've seen any of these clips. Some people have compiled these clips of card breaks that card breakers did back in 2011, where they were flipping by numbered Mike Trout cards and had no idea who he was. Or 2013, where they were flipping by Giannis cards and had no idea who Giannis was. You don't know where those types of players are necessarily going to come from. And maybe some of them are in this year's basketball rookie class. Who knows? There are so many cards and variations out there. And obviously, I can only imagine what you went through back and putting those back in price guides together. I remember your stories about staying up late at night and building all these spreadsheets of all this data. Now we at least have the benefit of computers and algorithms and eBay sales history to make some of that a little bit easier. But man, back then, that must have been quite the process. Other people were saying to do what you did, that you could do a better job if you only do the cards that people really care the most about. And I said, I realize that, but if you do every card, you're, you're going to give confidence in the whole industry, that every card has some value, some more than others. It's why on the fastest moving cards, they need other tools besides a printed price guide or even some of the digital price guides. To be up to the minute, you've got to have data sources that are up to the minute. Yeah, especially with cards from the last few years, it's been incredible how dynamic the market has become. What are your thoughts on what an ideal future for the national could be? Kudos to you for showing that part of the national needs to be some of these, not webinars, but presentations and and making people that are interesting in the industry available in a format that people can receive whether they're there or not. Being there is important, but people who aren't there also care. The final thing is in the interest of moving it around the country, And there's some different things that are controversial about raising some prices or uh, doing some things like that to make more venues possible. But I'd really love to see it twice a year. Two nationals a year, one in the winter, one in the summer, rotating them around and and probably reducing the footprint just a little bit, at least for one of them. That would be great. And again, the virtual component. We're going to have a national in Chicago, and I think it, it could be the best one ever.